Well, this morning we are gathered for Missional Sunday. And Missional Sunday is a time to remember how we serve how we serve a missionally incarnational God. We remind ourselves that we have been equipped for his mission in the world, and we recognize those who we support in their missional endeavors around the globe. It's really about three R's, and we're going to look at them this morning, remembering, reminding, and recognizing. And, and I want to look at that first line because some of you probably said, wait a minute, shouldn't it be this is a time to remember that we serve a missionally incarnational God? And my intent there with the word how is with meaning. Before we move on, I want to break down just three of the concepts that we saw in that first sentence. The word how, missional, incarnational. First, the word how, the morning, this morning we aren't looking to realize that we serve a missionally incarnational God. The story of Christmas, this Advent series that we just came out of, surely showed us and reminded us that we serve a missionally incarnational God. Jesus was literally the physical presence of God in the neighborhood. Rather, this morning, we are reminding ourselves how we serve. How is the means, the how of, uh, of what he desires of us? It's how we live out our response to a God that is incarnational. To understand how we are called to serve a missionally incarnational God, it's also important to understand what I mean when I say missional and incarnational. Alan Hirsch, a missiologist known for his research into church movements, says the word missional is defined in this way. A proper understanding of missional begins with recovering a missionary understanding of God. By his very nature, God is a sent one who takes the initiative to redeem his creation. He continues, this doctrine, also known as Missio Dei, is descending of God, is causing many to redefine their understanding of the church because we, you, me, everyone in this room, are the sent people of God. The church is the instrument of God's mission in the world. And as things stand, many see it, unfortunately, the other way around. They believe that mission is an instrument of the church, a means by which the church is grown. Although we frequently say the church has a mission, according to missional theology, the word mission here, uh, missional, a more correct statement would be the mission has a church. Alan reminds us that God has a mission in the world, and his mission has a church in which he wants to have it partner with him to help live out his missionary nature to the world. A few years ago, we, East Petersburg Mennonite Church, defined missional in this way. To be missional means to be intentionally creative about the ways that we lovingly announce, embody, and demonstrate the reigning good news and goodness of the kingdom of God to our neighbor means to lovingly announce, embody, and demonstrate the reigning good news and goodness of the kingdom of God. Alan Hirsch is not the only missiologist. There's also a guy by the name Michael Frost who has studied a lot of church movements. And he says the word missional literally can be defined as alerting others to the reign of Christ in every area. Now, 
lastly, I want us to look at this word incarnational. Incarnational is a word that we use just like missional and church settings, and we begin to use it. And, and sometimes we don't actually take the time to pause and define it, and, and we assume we know what it's talking about, but we don't always actually realize the impact of that word. Incarnational is the assumption of the human form or nature. In theology, it is the doctrine that Jesus himself assumed human form and is completely both God and is human. This morning, as we journey through Missional Sunday, we realize that we serve a missionally incarnational God and that He desires us to live in response to His nature by partnering with His mission in the world. The church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. And I fear that we might not understand that, and I fear that we might not do that well. If you would study church movements as a whole right now, that has been shown time and time again that 80% of all churches right now are either in decline or have plateaued off in growth. 80% of churches. 80% of us are declining or have plateaued. Do we understand God's mission? Do we understand his missionary heart, his character that is on the move? And if so, then why is this true of us? This morning, we begin to realize that we need to live in response to this missionally incarnational God. By both remembering how to serve him, we remind ourselves to become equipped, and we also recognize his missionary nature and those who are partnering with it to the ends of the earth. To the, do that this morning, we are going to be looking at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And I invite you to follow along either in your Bible or, uh, or you will also find it on the screen overhead in a minute. But before we look at Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and as you find it, let me briefly share just a little context, a little kind of history that is happening around this point of the story. Now, it may seem odd as you find it and you realize that it's, this story is at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's at the end of his life. We've literally just studied Christmas last week. And, and so now all of a sudden now we're talking about the other end of Jesus' life and ministry on this earth. But in many ways, this story is a consistent theme to what we see in the story of Christmas. This passage surely shows a consistent theme through the life of Jesus. His missionary nature. It is present with him at his birth. It is evident throughout his teaching. It is evident in his commission at this passage at the end of his ministry. Now, right before this story takes place, Jesus was violently sentenced to death at the hands of the empire's capital punishment. As the life of Jesus was snuffed out, he was placed in a burial plot. And on the end of Sabbath, just three days later, we see that death could no longer hold the Messiah by its chains. He arose with an earthquake. He appeared to two women. And he told them, hey, go and tell my brothers, go and tell my followers who are hiding out, who are doubting, who are currently not with you, tell them I am going to meet them at the mountain, this place that we both know, this place where I have appointed for them. Go and tell them to meet me there. 
And that's where we pick up this morning in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Now in this passage, the disciples of Jesus have seen him in their presence. And they fall at the feet of him in worship. That seems to be the right action, right? I mean, after all, isn't Jesus God's son? Isn't Jesus a king to be worshipped? However, as Jesus stands next to them and as they fall in worship, it's almost in Matthew's narrative as if Jesus ignores their worship. And it says, he went to them. Right? They fall in worship, but Jesus kind of just keeps going to them and meets them where they are at and begins to talk. He tells them as he stands next to them, what worship in action really looks like for him. It looks like this thing that we've named the Great Commission. This is how we serve. This is the means by which we serve a missionally incarnate God. We remember the how in this passage. We remind ourselves how we've been equipped. Now about this passage, theologian William Barclay once wrote that Jesus assured them of his power, He gave them a commission, and he promised them a presence. We might say this passage speaks of power, of purpose, and presence. If we were to illustrate that, we might look at it in this way. And let's just take a look at this trifecta of power, purpose, and presence. In this passage, we see that Jesus assures them of his power. Jesus stood before them after overthrowing these chains of death and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's assured them of his power. He's overcome life. He's overcome the human plight. He's overcome disease. He's overcome temptation. And now he himself has even overcome death. All authority is at his fingertips. He assures them that I now have all authority. I am authority in its fullest. He assures them of how they've been equipped. They've been equipped with his power, his authority. In this passage, we also see that Jesus then gives them purpose. Jesus speaks, let's go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This passage, what we see as Jesus stands here, that he commissions his followers. He gives them a missionary purpose. This is how we serve a missionally incarnate God. As his disciples fall at his feet, he tells them, I've commissioned you with my power, but also with my purpose. This is how you really worship me. This is how you respond with your lives to me. 
Lastly, in this passage, he promises his presence. And we read it, and he says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of this age. Jesus tells him that his authority or his power, his presence will be with them throughout this purpose that he's given them. As, as they you know, go to the ends of the earth, as they make disciples, he will be with them to the very end. And it, he will be with them even to the point which many of them will know means martyrdom. He is commissioning them to go with his power, with his purpose, and with his presence. I love two reflections from the New Bible Commentary revised on this passage. And they read like this. He has accomplished his work in his incarnation. He gives us his presence so we may accomplish ours. Secondly, the universal authority of the Lord leads to the universal mission of the church. Before these 11 followers of Jesus stood Jesus himself. He had overcome temptations, a human experience, disease, even moral death. He now had authority over it all. And he gives that authority to the church and tells them how he did it. He reminds them how he did it. I made disciples, and now you, who are my disciples, have been equipped to be disciple makers. And I'm giving you my same power and authority to go and do that unto the end of the age, and I will be with you. The reality of Jesus is words here are explained best by the Wycliffe Bible Commentary as it says, the ensuing commission is backed by the authority of him who is God's meteorological king with power extending to every realm. The Great Commission contains one of the primary central commands. The imperative make disciples with three subordinate participials. Go, baptizing, and teaching. We are to go. We are to Baptize and teach. All that is part of this how we serve God through making disciples. I think there's a few reminders that we need to take note of in this passage. Notes to remember how we serve a missionally incarnational God. How we remind ourselves that he has literally equipped us in this way. First, the presence of Jesus is always met with worship. Even in our doubt. These 11 followers of Jesus have been in hiding. They've begun to kind of question and worry about the future of their movement. Probably worried and questioning some of their own life, of their purpose, of their own end. And Mary shows up with this glimmer of hope and she says, I've just seen Jesus and he's telling me to tell you to go to the mountain Galilee and he will meet you there says that they go and they encounter the presence of Jesus. And when they saw him, this passage says, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Some doubted. Why did they doubt? What did they doubt? Theologians, historians have long debated what this passage is hinting at. Did they doubt that Jesus was really with them? Even though he was there, even though they worshipped him? Were they doubting that that was really him? Did they doubt that he had come back? Did they doubt that he ever died in the first place? Perhaps just some of them doubted. Or maybe it's saying the 11 worshipped and they had brought some of their friends, but those people were doubting. Seemingly these guys, regardless of which of those is, seemingly these guys, these 11 guys who walked along the sides of Jesus, 
found themselves at various parts of their journey struggling with faith and who God was. You and I are no different. To be honest, if we were truly transparent, if we were truly honest with each other, we would know that there is doubt in this room right now about some aspect of God, some aspect of faith, or some aspect of the journey. We would never let that banner fly, though. We would never be that transparent. We wouldn't admit it. We wouldn't our friends and family to think we are strong. We wouldn't tell them in the places in which we are not. However, Matthew finds it important in his narrative to mention this. It it really seems that it doesn't need to be here for the whole story, but Matthew makes sure it's included in his narrative with purpose. Some doubted. They still worshiped. Yet even in their doubt, they pursued meeting his presence at Mary's encouragement. Even though they were in doubt and even though they were in fear, they pushed themselves. When Mary told them to go and meet Jesus, they pushed themselves to actually still go to the mountain. And they pushed themselves to worship when they see this guy that they're possibly doubting. It's a great reminder for us that even in our doubting, the times that we are struggling with some aspect of faith or God or our journey, that we still need to push on. We might still need to push on through worship. We might not feel like singing. We might not feel like falling at the feet of Jesus. But what if, like these guys, at the feet of Jesus, as we push on, we actually meet the presence of Jesus in worship? Secondly, while we practice adoring worship, it's not where we are to remain. Matthew records no response from Jesus to the worship. They fall at his feet, they begin to worship, and Jesus seemingly just keeps walking towards them and comes to them as the passage says, then Jesus came to them. Jesus came to them in their worship, but he actually wanted a deeper worship from them. He did not want them to remain at his feet in adoration and in worship of that type and in all of him. He wanted them to worship him by following through on their purpose. He wanted worship in action. Let me say that again. He wanted them to worship him by following through on their purpose. Jesus was the missionary presence of God. And it was part of God's mission in the world. He wanted to have more than just a worshiping church. He wanted a church that was commissioned to be part of his mission in the world. As I quoted from Alan Hirsch earlier, the church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. The annual missional Sunday that we are celebrating is to remind ourselves that we are not supposed to be stationary. Now, we may be called to this area, but we are not called to be stationary. The first thing that Jesus commands there is what? Go! Go! The question is, if we are a people of mission, if we are a church of a mission, and we are not to be stationary... Have we become content with the wrong thing? Now, I already know what some of you are going to say. Well, I'm not called to go to the end of the earth. I've never received a call to go anywhere. I did my time. I'm retired now. And you tend to think of this traditional defined going to overseas to go to the end of the earth. And I would say be careful in thinking like that, that you are not confusing the words call and contentment. 
you're not confusing call and contentment. We all have received call. Carl Vader's in his book, The Grasshopper Myth, reminds small churches and us that biblical contentment is never an excuse for settling. This passage in Matthew reminds us all that we've received the call. Go in some capacity. The question is if we have allowed ourselves to be content with remaining in adoration and worship, right? We just fit in this adoring worship time, or have we actually sensed this sense of go? Are we at the feet of Jesus, or are we allowing him to walk closer and command us to go? Biblical contentment is never an excuse for settling. Thirdly, we remind ourselves that we have been equipped with Jesus' power and authority. We've been equipped with Jesus' power and authority. The great commission of Jesus that we're reading here and his church and to his followers is a very big call. It takes serious reflection. We all know this passage. We've read it a thousand times. We could explain it in our own way. But it takes more serious reflection than we probably often give it. Matthew as a whole is a longer book of the Bible. He likes to tell a lot of details in his story. Overall, this is a short passage from Matthew, but that doesn't take away from the power and the intent that Matthew is trying to proclaim through his narrative here. For many of these 11 who were first commissioned in this way, their journey also meant surrendering themselves to mission in a way that meant death for the cause. Death for the cause. Recently, I heard somebody reflect, I could never do what they do as they began to reference a missionary living in a place that was not desirable. Why you may not be called to do what they do, you most certainly can do it. To think otherwise is not biblical understanding. It is contentment. You can do it because Matthew reminds us that it's not us doing it, right? It is not us doing it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to who? To Jesus. Therefore, go. We are never acting on our own power and authority. To say that I could never do what they do is trusting ourselves more than God. It's settling for contentment, not call. We read this passage on Missional Sunday to remind ourselves that we have been called, that we have been equipped with his power and authority. When Mark tells this same account of uh, Jesus and, and his great commission, he adds this part to it. Go into all the world, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, again, there's the power and authority. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. 80% of churches are in decline or plateaued. Do we understand what the word go means? Do we understand what all authority has been given means? We can do the Great Commission. We are supposed to do the Great Commission because we have been equipped with His power and authority. 
Matthew says, all authority is given to me. Mark says, in my name, I will do these great things of authority, these miraculous powers. It's part of my mission in the world. Do these things define our church? Do these things define our lives? Does this seem normal to us? Because folks, in the Great Commission, it's supposed to. Right? When Jesus commands his followers to go, these are the things that are supposed to define them. The question is, do we look like that? Fourthly, we remember that we are to go to make disciples, to baptize and teach. These four aspects in that order are what Jesus commanded of his followers. He modeled it with those 11. He told those disciples, I want you, my disciples, to be disciples who make disciples who will carry my mission to the ends of the earth. In that way, disciples of disciples of disciples, it is also our commissioning. It is also a reminder to our call and mission. It is how we serve a missionally incarnate God. The NIV application commentary says the Great Commission contains one primary central command, the imperative make disciples with three subordinate participants, right? Go, baptizing, and teaching. There might be good reasons why this individual or that individual should not go somewhere, writes F.F. Bruce, but there are never good reasons for the churches failing to reach out and go. There are never good reasons for the church to fail at being part of God's mission. Or maybe Dr. Mark Strauss's version of the Layman's Bible Commentary will connect with you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the key to the whole gospel narrative, right? This short passage is the key to everything Matthew wanted to write. It concerns making disciples of all nations. Matthew's Jewish community would need to know this. And that Jesus had commissioned his apostles for this purpose, which included Matthew's readers. This is what we are to be part of. This apostolic commissioning to partner with the missionary character of God by making disciples. This is how we serve a missionally incarnate God. It is also how we worship. We are called to make disciples. Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. This is in what Jesus promises he will be with us to the end in. We love that last line, Jesus is with you. We tell each other that when we're in the hospital, when we're going through something. But what Jesus promised is that he will be with us to the ends of the earth as we follow him on mission. Let's tangent here just for a moment as we begin to close. Sometimes we get hung up on this idea that we are to get people in the church to baptize them and then disciple them to be like us. That is not the formula, that is not the order in what Jesus has commissioned us in. The church does not have a mission, the mission has a church. We, you, 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 me, you, 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 we all have been equipped with the power and the authority of God. We are to be inviting people into discipleship relationships, baptizing them when they are ready, and then teaching them what it means to follow Jesus. We love to put that teaching part earlier, usually. Man, we get this so wrong. 
It's why I believe the church is in decline. I believe it's why that when they study the church, 90% of all churches are under 350 people. I believe it's why 83% of all churches are under 250 people. I believe it's why most churches are losing 10 to 15 people a year because we have forgotten what it means to be a disciple and we have forgotten how to disciple. You've heard me quote Mike Green in this way, but permit me one more time. If you make disciples, you will always get the church. But if you try to build the church, you will rarely get disciples. Folks, I fear that we've put the cart before the horse far too many times. I fear that we haven't actually done discipling because there's a bunch of lifelong followers of Jesus in this room that actually hasn't been discipled. It's why the nature of all of us doesn't look more like Jesus. The older we get, it just looks more like a broken human because in all reality, we've never been in a discipling relationship. As we begin to close, the word Matthew actually uses there to talk about making disciples is Matthew. It's the third time Matthew mentions it. The King James here actually does it a great injustice and just uses the word to teach all nations. But if we were to literally translate that word, it means to make or create disciples. Not to teach. We love to teach. We know how to preach. We know how to tell people what we think of God. We know how to tell them what God means to us. But do we know what it means to make, to create disciples? The word for disciple that Matthew uses to describe Jesus' followers is Matthias. To be a pupil of something. However, Matthew says, Jesus commands them, Matteo, to make people become a student or a pupil. That's before they get baptized, by the way, right? Make disciples, then baptize them. Make a pupil. Who has a pupil in this room? I hope some of us do. Have we really believed that Jesus has commissioned us in making disciples? In all honesty, are we worshiping the way that Jesus commissioned us to? Jesus wants disciples who are being discipled and who are discipling others for the journey. He doesn't want us to remain. He doesn't want us content. He wants us to go. Some of us have forgotten how to go. Some of us need to find new avenues. Maybe life has changed. Maybe our age is older. But it doesn't take away from the fact that in whatever stage we are at, we are still supposed to rediscover in this time what it means for us to go. As Jesus tells them then to teach them, to baptize them, and then to teach them. The word he uses, teach, there is didesco, to instruct or to impart. Literally to take that of which you are and to plant it in somebody else. Right? You are literally to take it. Paul does this all the time. Yeah, I invite you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Who are we intentionally doing that with? I think one of the challenges for us in this passage is to analyze your life wherever you're at and, and realize where there's a weakness or a brokenness that you need to overcome. I've done this several times in my life. I found it amazing. You might find a spiritual director or a, an older elder and say, you know what, I like the way that you manage your money. I need to learn from that. Or I like the way that you can speak uh, in front of people. I'd like to learn from that. Or I like the way that you have a contemplative spirit. Teach me to listen more and seek those people out and become disciples of them. 
Each one of us has different gifts in this room. It's imperative that we become disciples of each other to discover the fullness of Christ. That's what all of Ephesians 4 is talking about when it talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. To discover the fullness of Christ. We need to become disciples of each other. And the second thing is, that we take away from this is we all have been commanded to go at every stage in our life to the very end to where Jesus will be with us. The question is, who is it that we are discipling? Who is it that we are saying, I invite you to learn from me, to imitate me as I imitate Christ? Let me finish with this powerful statement from the layman's Bible commentary. We do not become disciples on our own terms. This we've learned from the Gospel of Matthew. Discipleship is a radical decision to leave self and follow Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount explained what kind of person a disciple should be. The Limited Commission explains, that's the setting of the 12 and the 72, what disciples do. The Kingdom Parables taught how to understand the life of a disciple in the kingdom. The Discourse on Christian Community taught how Christians relate to each other in Christian community. The apocalyptic discourse explains the central focus of the messianic kingdom. Jesus, not Jerusalem. The man who tried to enter the marriage banquet without wedding garments was cast out, indicating that one does not gatecrash the kingdom on one's own terms. As disciples, we must understand these principles about following Jesus and the kingdom of God. We cannot gate-crash the kingdom. I invite the worship team to come forward. As we go, may you recognize that we as a church support missionaries, but we are also called to be missionaries. In the lobby today, you'll find copies of updates from our missionaries, and, and it'll invite you new ways to know what they're doing, how to pray for them, but it may also, and I hope it also, challenges you with the calling to go and to make disciples. It's for that purpose we have been created.